Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Mia told me that I should sing those words, but we have different gifts. <laughs> Thought I'd spare you. These famous words from the most popular hymn in American history resound in our ears with deep familiarity and profound meaning. Scholars claim today that this hymn is sung about 10 million times a year. We hear it at almost every funeral, and the words have become synonymous with faith, the quintessential example of using sight as a metaphor for religious conversion. People have described their conversions as gaining the ability to see since Saul was struck blind on the road to Damascus, had those scales fall from his eyes, and was transformed from a terrorist persecuting the followers of Jesus into an apostle who welcomed Gentiles and planted congregations all over Asia Minor. When you add Saul's conversion to the many stories of Jesus healing the blind in the Gospels, you got the ingredients for a full-blown philosophy of faith, faith as learning to see. But to see what exactly? There's this myth about Amazing Grace that's been told for generations. It goes like this. The author of Amazing Grace, John Newton, was a wretched slaveholder, a slave trader, who had a near-death experience on a slave ship, prayed for salvation, converted to Christianity, quit the slaving business, became an abolitionist, and wrote this hymn about it as a description of his conversion. It's a really fantastic story. The only problem is it's total hogwash. In his book, Bury the Chains, Adam Hochschild notes that Newton did work on slave boats and was a notoriously wretched person, showing no grace for anyone, especially the enslaved. It is also true that he became a Christian after surviving a violent storm in 1748. However, after the storm, Newton immediately signed up to work on another slave boat, and then another, eventually becoming the captain of a slave ship after his conversion. It wasn't until 1754 that Newton stopped working as a slave trader, but that was because he suffered a stroke, not a conversion. Yet even after his stroke, Newton continued investing his money in the slave trade. It was later in life, while in seminary, that Newton started writing hymns like Amazing Grace in 1772, 24 years after his conversion. Yet even then, Newton did not change his views on the morality of slavery or become an abolitionist until 1780, which is eight years after he wrote Amazing Grace. Contrary to the myth I was taught, Amazing Grace is not an abolitionist hymn. So I have a lot of questions. What was Newton converted from and converted to on that slave ship in 1748. What was he blind to and what did he learn to see? What did Newton's faith mean if he kept on working as a slave trader? The validity of Newton's conversion is suspect now in my estimation. 
To be fair, it's not all John Newton's fault. I have questions about a lot of people's conversions, including my own, in fact. What happened, actually, when I gave my life to Jesus and was baptized? What, what occurred? What is the foundation of my faith? Is it believing that Jesus is Lord, Messiah, Savior, God? Is it believing in the Trinity or the Apostles' Creed? Is it believing that we go to heaven when we die? Is it an intellectual assent to some doctrine, believing the right things, orthodoxy, or a personal relationship with Jesus, whatever that means? If it were any of these ways of thinking about faith that I've traditionally heard over the years, then the story of Bartimaeus and Jesus on the road out of Jericho makes no sense. Our traditional ideas about faith are not actually the definition of faith we find in the Gospels, but a narrow and shallow version of faith that we've invented for ourselves that has dominated our cultural and religious landscape for generations, a faith we came up with for ourselves because, truth be told, we needed to find a, a way of following Jesus that was easy, doable, a faith that demands very little of us, that allows us to convert without changing our lives, to get saved and keep on slaving, a faith that affords us the ability to have our history sanitized and sanctified, a faith devoid of any impact on the material world around us. Yet, as scholar Ched Myers writes, Jesus' call to discipleship does not seek our cognitive assent, nor churchly habits, nor liturgical magic, nor theological sophistication, nor doctrinal correctness, nor religious piety, nor any of the other poor substitutes we Christians have conjured through the ages. Discipleship depends on whether or not we really want to see. To see our weary world, he says, as it truly is, without denial or delusion. To see the tough realities of, and the inconvenient truths about economic disparity and racial oppression, ecological destruction and war without end and to see our beautiful world as it truly could and should be, free of despair and distraction, the divine dream of enough for all people, beloved community, restored creation, the peaceable kingdom. The story of Bartimaeus may be out of step with the traditional definition of faith we received, but biblically speaking, it's the paradigmatic example of faith in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' encounter with Bartimaeus is the final act in his life before entering the city of Jerusalem. The crucial turning point from Jesus' ministry in Galilee to his journey toward the cross. You may remember back at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Peter called Jesus by the correct name, Messiah, but then refused to follow him on the way of the cross. And Jesus famously said, get behind me, Satan. Now here at the end, Bartimaeus does the opposite. He actually calls Jesus by the wrong name, using son of David, which is repudiated by Jesus later. And yet, unlike Peter, he follows Jesus on the way. This culminating episode in Mark's gospel also provides a dramatic contrast to the two stories that immediately precede it in Mark 10, the rich man's refusal and the disciples James and John's quest for glory. In light of these two stories, where people fail to follow Jesus, Bartimaeus becomes the epitome and the personification of what it means to have faith. So the moral of Mark's story is that faith is not about getting Jesus' name right, 
or asking for wealth or asking for glory or even having a personal relationship, but learning to see, learning to see how to follow Jesus and then embodying his life and teachings. Unlike the rich man, Bartimaeus was landless and disabled, begging from the side of the road, likely using his cloak, which was all he had left, to collect loose change from people traveling the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. He is the very definition of the poor, the very people Jesus invited the rich man to sell his land and give the money to. Unlike James and John, Bartimaeus does not approach Jesus directly with a request. Instead, his cries are initially silenced by the crowds. There are many parallels between the crowds in Bartimaeus' story and the crowds in our society today. Just as Bartimaeus' cries were silenced by the crowds, whenever poor, marginalized, oppressed, and disabled people cry out for mercy in our time, their cries are almost always silenced by the crowds. When people with disabilities cry out for dignity and acceptance, the crowd says silence. When the sick cry out for health care, the crowd says silence. When women cry out for equality, the crowd says silence. When refugees cry out for asylum, the crowd says silence. When the housing insecure cry out for homes, the crowd says silence. When transgender and non-binary people cry out for acceptance and protection, the crowd says silence. When black indigenous people of color cry out for justice and freedom, the crowd says silence. But if this story shows us anything, it is that when the crowd tries to silence the poor and the marginalized and the disabled, it simply means that they must cry out louder and louder until they are heard. When the crowd tried to silence Bartimaeus, he got louder and he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus refused to be silenced, and when he got louder, his cries for mercy literally stopped Jesus in his tracks. Mark tells us Jesus came to a complete standstill. The crowds may not have wanted to hear the cries of the poor, but Jesus did. And so should anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. If we are followers of this Jesus we see in this text, there are only two places for us to be in the story. We could either be the ones crying out for mercy from the side of the road or the ones who hear their cries and stop in our tracks. There's no middle ground in this story. The only other option is to be in the crowd who's trying to silence the people who are crying out for mercy. Jesus is the model for most of us, and he not only stopped in his tracks here in this story, he says, call him here. And when he came, Bartimaeus threw off the only thing he owned, the thing he was using to survive, his cloak, sprang up and came to Jesus. And then Jesus asked him this question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? This is, in fact, the same question Jesus asked James and John when they were squabbling about power. What do you want me to do for you? 
It's a common question we often hear. It can serve as a greeting when we walk into a bank or a barber shop, a beauty salon, or a place of business. What do you want me to do for you? It's a question we've all been asked and answered. It's a question we sometimes ask our children, our spouses, our friends, our fellow church members. But it's interesting, we don't always answer truthfully, do we? We don't always want to tell people what we really want, nor do we expect people to tell us what they really want either. Many of us are even walking through life out of touch with our deepest needs. And even more tragic, we are unwilling to share our deepest needs with the people who are closest to us. Sometimes we think that having needs makes us weak. We are ashamed of our needs, too vulnerable to tell people what we truly want, let alone to ask for it. We don't want to be demanding, and we fear that our desires may consume us and everyone around us if we can't get control of them and manage them for ourselves. And so most of us, most of us wouldn't know what to say if Jesus looked at us and said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky tackled this question in 1979 in a movie called The Stalker. The film is set in a post-apocalyptic future. It follows the story of a man named Stalker who guides two characters known as the writer and the scientist on a dangerous journey into a mysterious region called The Zone. Legend had it that there was a room inside the zone that upon entering, one would be granted their deepest wants, their innermost desires, their heart's desire. The journey of these three is a long odyssey, a spiritual pilgrimage of sorts. And the three travelers finally arrive at the threshold of the room in the zone. But before venturing in, the writer asks the guide, what if I don't know what I want? What if I don't know what I want? The writer says, Stalker replies to the writer, the room will decide for you. The room knows what you truly want, even if you are unconscious of it. The room does not give you what you think you want, but what you actually want more than anything else. Then they learn a story of a man who entered the room hoping to bring his brother back from the dead, but instead was granted his secret desire for wealth and then took his own life. The three men then suddenly realize that no one actually knows their true desires. And this causes them to engage in a standoff, even to destroying the room entirely. In the end, none of the men enter the room because they're all too afraid of receiving what they really want, their unknown desires. Would you enter the room? I'm not sure I would. Perhaps it is the fear of our desire and the inability to express our desires that makes it so hard for us to hear the cries of those like Bartimaeus who are intimately in touch with their own desires and know exactly what they want and are not ashamed to cry out for it. We sometimes ask, why should the poor and the marginalized and the disabled get what they desire simply by crying out for it when I don't even know what I want, let alone how to ask for it? This is the perspective of the crowd. What we are after in life 
it, it find, turns out may impact our ability to follow Jesus. It's remarkable how important desire is when it comes to following. Peter wanted to protect Jesus from death. That was his desire. The rich man wanted to inherit eternal life. That was his desire. James and John wanted to get power and glory. That was their desire. But all Bartimaeus wanted was mercy. He did not inquire after the mysteries of eternal life or a top position in the new administration, but simply asked for the mercy to see again. Jesus did not grant the rich man's request because he would not give away his possessions. And he did not grant the disciples' request because it was based on delusions of grandeur. But Jesus did help poor Bartimaeus because his request was so pure. This is why Bartimaeus is the archetype of the true disciple. He does not ask Jesus for riches or power or glory or even eternal life. He simply wanted mercy. Just the mercy to be able to see. Peter, the rich man, the disciples, they're asking for all manner of worldly things, constantly missing the point, fumbling, falling, failing to follow Jesus. But Bartimaeus wanted the one thing that is needed to walk in the way of Jesus, vision. The ability to see the way so that one can walk on it. Faith is not assenting to doctrine. Faith is not getting Jesus' name right or our Christology straight. Faith is not believing. Faith is not even trusting. Faith is seeing. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Faith is taking up our cloaks and our crosses and following Jesus. Faith is the act of loving God and neighbor and our enemies. Faith is crying out for mercy when we need it and stopping in our tracks to hear the cries of the poor, marginalized, and disabled. Faith is not surrendering to God like an atheist in a foxhole or a slave trader in a storm, only to go back oppressing people for the rest of our lives. Faith is not a bunch of words or thoughts or feelings or beliefs or statements. Faith is following a poor Galilean carpenter, executed for blasphemy and treason, strung up between two thieves who died in solidarity with the oppressed. Faith is the ability to see the world for what it is and the vision to make the world what it could be. There's a song I remember from my youth by the rock band DC Talk. The song's called What If I Stumble and it begins with a quote from Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning was an author and writer. He says, the single greatest cause of atheism is the, in the world today is Christians. Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips walk out the door and deny him with their life. This is what an unbelieving world, he says, simply finds unbelievable. I've always felt that this is one of the best descriptions of the hypocrisy we see in American Christianity today, which is a lot like watching the blind leading the blind. If faith is just about confessing Jesus with our lips, then the heartless inhumanity we see from so many Christians today would be baffling, stunning. But if faith is about seeing and following, then that explains the phenomenon of millions of Christians who say they have faith but act like demons and millions of unbelievers who say they do not have faith but act like Jesus. 
Faith is a mystery. Personally, I used to believe that faith was about getting my theology right, making sure my Christology was perfect. But now I see Jesus doesn't care if I call him Messiah or Son of David or as Will Gaffney said last week, Son of Bathsheba. Or even if I call him a son of a gun. Jesus doesn't care so long as I follow. I used to think faith was about getting all my words right in my head and in my prayers, but now I see it's about getting my feet pointed in the right direction. I used to think faith was about having the perfect body and the perfect soul, but now I see Jesus loves whatever body I have and can use any body for loving God and loving neighbors. I used to think faith was about getting all my desires in the right place, but now I see all I need to truly desire is the mercy to see and the vision to follow the way of Jesus. I used to think that faith was about obligation and devotion, worship, ritual, liturgy, and tradition, but now I see all Jesus ever desired from me was mercy, not sacrifice, and that God already told me what she wanted from me, and that is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. I used to think that faith was about being once saved, always saved, or the modern equivalent, which is to be once woke, always woke. There is no such thing. But now I see that faith is about always being open to new light, as our covenant states, constantly in the process of being blinded by God, only to then have the scales fall for our eyes so that we can see in new ways. Now I see that no matter what desolations and lamentations we face in this life, the steadfast love of our gracious God never ceases. Her mercies are new every morning. They never come to an end. Now I see that those who are merciful are blessed because they will obtain mercy. Now I see, as Mary Oliver wrote, we do not have to be good. We do not have to walk on our knees a hundred miles through a desert repenting. We only have to let the soft animal of our bodies love what it loves. Because whoever we are, no matter how lonely, she says, the world offers itself to our imagination, calls to us like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing our place in the family of things. Now I hear these words much differently. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Now I see. Faith comes down to loving mercy and listening to those who cry out for it from the side of the road giving mercy, receiving mercy, receiving the mercy to be blinded over and over again and then learning to see together as we walk on this journey. That is what it means to have faith. Amen.